name is David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. And you are listening to the first episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself will use the lens of the rock band Fish in order to uh, sort of spin off and introduce the listener to other bands and other songs that we think that uh, if you enjoy Fish, you will like very much. Yeah, David and I are both devoted Fish fans. We see a bunch of shows every year. We listen to a ton of Fish in our free time and analyze Fish in uh, the nerdy ways that everyone else does. Um, but we've also got uh, some pretty diverse musical tastes. Um, I don't spend a lot of my time, I know you don't either, David, listening to a ton of jam bands outside of Fish and the Dead. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. But. No, 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 no. Um, I've had some fun at a couple string cheese shows, I won't lie. Um, but we both have some pretty diverse uh, uh, tastes, a pretty um, heavy interest in music history, and uh, we wanted to use this podcast as a medium to talk about fish, but also talk about a lot of other music that we think you'll enjoy if you like particular fish jams. Yeah, I mean, we love fish. We uh, it certainly brought us together. We yeah. love fish fans, but you know, it's part of the problem with fish fans is sometimes all we listen to is fish. So um, we're hoping to maybe try to rectify that situation with this podcast, have some fun, take some deep dives, and uh, also it's very much a work in progress. And both of us happen to be podcast neophytes, so I would say if you like what you hear, bear with us and. Um, we're on Twitter at underscore uh, at underscore beyond the pond. So uh, yeah, we definitely would love to hear any and all feedback that you may have. Now at this point, I think uh, I think I'm ready to get to the fish. Absolutely, I'm always down right. to some fish. All right, so our jam of our first episode is one that is probably, it's fair to say this is a favorite jam amongst most Fish fans, or lots of Fish fans, I would say at least. Would you agree, David? Oh, yeah. This practically needs no introduction. Let's do it anyway. This is the Camden 99 Chalk Dust Torture, or as it's uh, affectionately known as the Camden Chalk Dust uh, this is one of my favorite fish jams of all time. Uh, I will never forget the first time I heard this, buying the Live Fish 08 uh, disc that came out. Not really impressed by the set list that I was reading, but nevertheless, I was um, uh, I was going to buy every single Live Fish in order as they came out, and I noticed immediately that the Chalk Dust went uh, a bit astray, and it just kept going and going and going, and it's one of those jams that I throw on um, on a regular basis, uh, and it, it always takes me to that place. It's a fantastic, fantastic example of uh, fish locking in in a really, really tight, really special uh, way through improvisation. So um, we felt that this was a really great jam to kick off our first episode and our podcast with, mainly because um, so many fans connect with it, uh, but also because when we started talking about this jam, uh, both David and I found ourselves just spitting out artists and songs and styles of music that we really um, felt were, were, were closely tied to this, uh, the style that Trey's playing during this jam and, and the band is uh, jamming on um, together. 
you know, there's very much of a uh, Frippian and uh, Eno-based influence to this, which guided so much of Fish's musical direction throughout 1998 and 1999. Um, but then there's also the electronica uh, and dance-heavy bass um, that takes over the song towards the end that really uh, transitions into what happened towards the fall and especially in that December 99 uh, tour build up towards uh, Big Cypress. So we felt that this was just a really perfect celebratory way to kick off our, our, our show. Um, uh, just briefly from a historical standpoint, you know, this came uh, in a really interesting place in the tour. It was very early in a tour that um, started in uh, Bonner Springs, Kansas, kind of wove its way through the southeast um, it was a uh, really fantastic two-night run at uh, in Atlanta over the 4th of July. Really unique Virginia Beach show. Um, but then this kind of snuck up on um, uh, uh, the fans. And, you know, it's a lot of one-off shows at this point in time. And there were some um, really good one-off shows towards the end of the tour. Um, but this comes right uh, as they're about to go into Great Woods. Right as they're about to go to Homedale, there's some fantastic playing on 713, another classic show, 715, both the first and second set, and then the lead-up to the Quasi-Festival at Oswego. Um, I find for myself, when I listen to this jam, um, the fact that it's the second song in the set, um, and it's coming out of a song that doesn't jam as much as, or didn't jam at that time really at all as Chalk Dust did, um, it just kind of shows that the band was really ready to explode with this tour um, and, and was ready to kick off some really great shows, which they did over the next uh, 10 to 12 days or so. So, um, David, you were at this show. What were your thoughts? Um, well, first of all, I would argue that 71399 was a great show. I was also at that show and must have checked my watch four or five times during that Wolfman's Brother. And uh, I still feel that way 18 years after the fact think it's overrated but getting uh back to 71099 i was indeed at that show and it was um interesting with the handful of shows i saw in july 99 i thought that the first set was significantly better than the, the second set um i'd also say that about the next two shows um july 12th and july 13th of great woods both had really good first sets but yeah um just about the venue what's interesting uh, I think at the time it was called the E Center. It's been like the Sony Blockbuster Center, the Susquehanna Bank Center. It's basically it's um, a typical big outdoor shed with a lawn in Camden, New Jersey, which is across the river from Philadelphia. And with the way that venue is set up, if you're on the lawn off to your left, you can see the Philadelphia skyline. So um, during that chalk dust torture and into the Roger, which uh, very nicely segued, you can see a gorgeous sunset over the Philadelphia skyline, which was uh, incredibly apropos for them. the portion of the chalk dust torture that everyone thinks is uh, the excellent highlight of that chalk dust torture. So you would go from this very blissful jam where you felt like you were floating two inches off the ground, the entire band is locked in. You look over, you see the sunset, it goes into the Roguet, and that was, you know, one of those things that you could only feel if you were at the show. And that first set in general is fantastic. It also has um, 
the really excellent bathtub gin with the improv based on uh, the Spencer Davis groups. I'm a man. It has um, Jimmy Smith's back of the chicken shack. I think they played a few times in 99 and not everybody knows this, but it has probably the best version of water in the sky. The band has ever played. And that's um, certainly something that you don't really think warrants like a best of, but seriously, Go back and listen to that water in the sky. It seems like it's got loops. It's got solos. It's long. And I think I may have used the bathroom during some of it, which I really regret doing in <laughs> back in retrospect. Um, set, know, two's int- set two's odd. It has a very long, very slow, very ambient tweezer. It's got two tray ballads because they do mountains in the mist and when the circus comes. Um it's got a type two birds, which is the highlight of the set, and then they close with Fluffhead. And the second set was like sixty five minutes, and I left thinking, "That's it." <laughs> um, no, but when it came out on Live Fish Eight, you listen back to it and you think, "Okay, the Chalk Dust and the first set. This is why it was a Mike favorite. This is why it came out as Live Fish Eight. This is why we're talking about it today." You know, two things, uh, just points of a note. Um, I, I, the Water in the Sky, I completely agree. It's It's got to be the best version, if not one of the you know few best that they've ever played. Um, it, it really goes to show for me when they play a jam on par with the, the Chalk Dust earlier in the set, it has an overall effect over pretty much anything that they play throughout the rest of the set. They're just locked in at that point, and it's almost one of those moments where it really doesn't matter what they play next, be it a song as standard, usually as Water in the Sky, or another great jam like that gin. Um, but uh, in terms of the theme, the, uh, the the Water in the Sky really carries over a lot of the musical themes. It feels like to me that the Chalk Dust has... Um, and so I just find that really interesting. When, whenever you hear a jam like the Chalk Dust, you're usually going to hear something else in the set that's completely unexpected, but you know, brilliant as well. Um, and then, you know, for better or worse, the second set of Seven Ten Ninety Nine was my go-to study album in college. So say say what you will <laughs> about it, but um, it, it served a purpose for me a couple years later. You know, I mean, I've got. I have no issue with tray ballads. I think Mountains in the Mist and When the Circus Comes are uh, high-quality tray ballads. But, I mean, you know, no one wants to hear Jerry do Stella Blue and Black Peter in the same set. I I would happily welcome uh, Mountains in the Mist back. I think it's been four or five years now since we've heard one. Probably longer than that, actually. I heard... Uh, I think uh, they may have played it in 2015, one of the rarity shows. Don't quote me on that. I don't... I think it was... It the last was more one that I'm aware of is um, Telluride, but um, okay. I'd have to go back and do it, do a little bit of, uh, of research on that. Anyway, um, you know, it's interesting you talk about that sunset. Um, for me, when I listen to this song, it just sounds like fish playing during the greatest sunset you've ever seen. Uh, so to know that that's happening over the city of brotherly love is, um, for someone who was not there, it's just a great image to put together the the jam and the actual moment. Right. Yeah, Camden is not the city of brotherly love, but uh, <laughs> well, right over yeah, right uh, uh, right over Philly. Over Philly, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, very cool. So, um, 
I think that we got uh, we've got some good thoughts over here about uh, the actual jam. So before we get into talking about this into like a larger musical context, you want to uh, listen to a bit of the the jam here, David? That's a good idea. All right, let's cue it on up. that fist jam in the pantheon of things that certainly do not suck and um <laughs> <laughs> putting it very lightly we have um 
in terms of feelings that we sort of got from that, what we compiled was drunk during sunset, quite possibly hovering two inches off the ground with a shitting grin. And uh, that was certainly how I felt back on July 10th, 1999. And, uh, <laughs> the way I feel every time I listen to that jam is uh, a good reminder of why I'm still a Big Fish fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's what it's about. That's um, just the anticipation that these guys are capable of pulling something like that off on any given night is why I've seen them as many times as I have since 1995. Which is why, because you never know if it's going to be the night when they're going to do that. And even if they can't reach those heights every night, chances are they'll get pretty close. Right. Yeah, that, um, from a stylistic standpoint, I think that we both charted out uh, heroic guitar solos, which Trey clearly throws out there, Uh, uh, celebratory melodies, uh, 80s soundscapes, uh, and tribal dance melodies. It... uh, kind of compiles this very driving song. It feels in some cases like the ultimate road trip, just all in 13 minutes. Maybe one that's at, you know, uh, 90 miles an hour across the Southwest. I can see that. So now in terms of, um, I guess the songs that it reminds us of in terms of historical lineage, Brian, what'd you pick out? So I think we both agreed there's uh, a ton of Robert Fripp influence in this in this jam. Um, it's almost as though Trey is just deliberately channeling Robert Fripp through this. You feel the same way? Absolutely. It's uh, it's full on Frippertronics up in there. Yes. Um, and for us, you know, we both um, I, I think we we started with a really modern song. Um, that really, to to me, from a melodic standpoint, from a driving standpoint, feels a lot like this Camden Chalk Dust. Um, and that's LCD Sound System's uh, All I Want, which is off their 2010 record, This Is Happening. Um, my personal favorite song of the year 2010. Um, one of my favorite LCD songs. Um, it really sounds as though he is lifting Robert Fripp off of uh, uh, throughout this song in the same sort of way that Trey does in uh, in the Camden Shock does. What are your thoughts? Oh, no. I mean, that song um, off that record is, in every sense of the word, a riff tribute. And um, even going further, I would say, in addition to Robert Fripp, that song will lead you directly to the David Bowie classic Heroes off uh, the album of the same name. That's a song that probably most of us have heard. I would say go back and listen to it again, because in addition to having um, the same melodic drive, the solos on that record are powered by Robert Fripp. He plays all over the Heroes album, Um, especially, let me see, I actually just finished reading um, on Bowie, which was the David Bowie sort of... um, Clip Notes Crash Course written by Rob Sheffield, the uh, excellent music critic who's also a extreme, extreme Bowie fanatic. And according to him, um, Robert Fripp was flown in to Berlin to record the solos on the Bowie, uh, David Bowie Heroes record, hung out in the studio for a bit, didn't do any sightseeing, didn't go to Brandenburg Gate, literally got back in the cab, hopped back on the plane to go back to the States. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> so believe that. Know. So believe that, if you will. But um, yeah, in terms of the wailing melodic solos on that song, that's definitely a tribute in All I Want and can be traced directly back to the last um, five minutes or so of that Chalk Dust Torture. Yeah, no, I definitely hear that as well. Do you want to um, uh, give a listen to All I Want and, and then Heroes? Absolutely. Right, very cool. you guys enjoy those uh, couple clips off that and can hear the similarities with LCD. I, I feel like James Murphy um, of LCD Sound System, you know, he recorded here, he produced that most recent Arcade Fire record that uh, Bowie's featured on on the title track and um, uh. there's so much of what he does. I, I have the same grunt whenever I think about that record. I just felt like it had to be noted. <laughs> it's not my favorite record at all. Um but, you know, I feel like there's so much of Bowie that Murphy tries to channel. Um, I don't think a lot of it is entirely successful, but I think he lifts a lot, especially from that Bowie 
uh, Berlin era. Um, right. But then you hear that in Heroes, that just very uh, underlying driving guitar solo from Fripp that um, just lingers throughout the entire song. But um, we would be uh, mistaken if we were not to mention um, really the origins of uh, the Frippian sound or one of the best places you could pretend, you could possibly hear it is in um, Brian Eno's Another Green World. Another Green World was a record I actually uh, found out about, well, I didn't find out about, but I really started listening to the fall of 2009 when Fish was uh, killing off a bunch of albums ahead of their Festival 8 show. And I All went right. through that list and just downloaded everything that was on there and Another Green World completely took me. Um, I was raised a um, very diehard um, and completely unironic U2 fan. And I think the greatest thing that I picked up from that part of my childhood was uh, a curiosity, at the very least, for Brian Eno. And then a, later a love for Brian Eno. Um, and uh, that album, Another Green World, just gets me. Um, it sounds like you're on a completely different planet. It's some... It's 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 kind of like what we were talking about earlier with that Thundercat record in the sense that it's a lot of musical ideas, um, not a ton of complete songs, but in those ideas you can hear um, really musical evolution from a pop standpoint over the next forty years. The song that we selected for this uh, is is called "The Big Ship," which is uh, midway through the record. It's really the emotional peak of the album. Um, we're going to do a couple, uh, uh, a little bit of a clip off of that, but we would also need to mention that St. Elmo's Fire, the second song on the record, features one of my favorite Fripp solos and another really, really great example, just not as purely melodic um, as the big ship that really fits the uh, the Camden Choctus. But what are your thoughts on this record? Um, I think it's incredible. Um, the big ship, to me, that sounds... If somebody could encapsulate the feeling of being born, that's sort of whenever I think of the big ship. It's very, uh, to use a cliche, it's quite cinematic. It looks like it should showcase um, like nature documentaries or that type yeah. of uh, that type of thing. And yeah, the guitar solo in Saint Elmo's Fire, if you could actually call it that, is um, it sort of sounds like an old Atari twenty six hundred malfunctioning, except awesome. <laughs> And uh, let me just say, obviously, um, Robert Fripp, I think, what his discography comprises over like 700 records. He's known for always being the front man for um, the heavy British prog rockers, King, uh, uh, King Crimson, mm-hmm. obviously. And um, maybe my favorite bit of Robert Fripp nerdery is that uh, in 1977, he produced a solo record by Daryl Hall, as in of Hall and Oates. And uh, this was a record called Sacred Songs. It was recorded in 1977. It wasn't released until 1980 because the record company didn't hear a single. And it's great and it's totally bizarre because you get these, you know, Daryl Hall, Philly soul pop songs. And out of nowhere, you hear like the Robert Fripp soundscapes just like jump into the track. And you think, huh, this is... Yeah, this is great. I mean, uh, yeah, for reasons that maybe God will reveal on the final day of judgment, Robert Fripp got to produce a Daryl Hall album, and it's awesome. Um, when we so. were preparing for this podcast uh, over the weekend, you recommended it to me, and I, I threw it on, and um, 
it was one of those records that uh, it's completely bizarre, but really, really, really fantastic, incredibly catchy in a lot of cases. Um, my wife heard me playing it and went over and checked what was on the iPod, and uh, her first reaction was, are you really listening to Hall & Oates right now? And then she kind of just walked away and... Uh, <laughs> but I, it was it was a great great uh, great record. It it made my uh, made my Saturday. <laughs> All right. enjoyed that clip briefly what have uh what else have you been listening to as of late that's not fish that you that you've been digging uh this week has been all about the new thundercat lp drunk uh mm. it's his first one i believe he put out an ep in 2015 i want to say um but it's his first full album since 2013's apocalypse which was one of my favorite records of that year um, it is a bit short on full song ideas, but filled with um, some of the most uh, just contagious bass lines and danceable riffs that I've, I've heard all year long. Um, it really, really reminds me of um, this very specific feeling that I got both in early college and when I was living in Asia uh, that 4 a.m. beer that you just don't need that just leads to uh, loads and loads of uh, laughter that comes out of nowhere and just a ton of fun with friends. Um, it's a real carefree record, and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Yeah, I had that on my phone. I've been listening to it, and um, the guy's a monster on bass. I know that's his main instrument, and he comes up with these incredible rubbery bass lines that flow like water like no some sort of like a very um more jacket pistorius than victor wooten i guess yeah. but uh like you said i'm having a hard time getting around the fact that there's not much in the way of songs it's very a lot of atmosphere he obviously really digs yacht rock he's got these falsetto yacht rock vocals all over everything and um he's undeniably talented I just have to see, go back and see if there's any hooks, which I'm not entirely sure that there are yet. I would say, you know, you want to hear the section between, um, 
Uh, I'm pulling up on my phone right now. The section between Tokyo and them changes. Tokyo, Jamil's Space Ride, Friend Zone, and them changes, which sounds like it might be a cover. It is not. It is an original from him. That section has the most complete songwriting that I've heard throughout the whole record and is just super okay. outrageous. What about you, so, Dave? What have you been listening to? Um, the thing I would listen to the most this week is an artist who goes by the name of Jay Som. That's J-A-Y space S-O-M. Um, that's actually the nom de rock of a 22-year-old woman whose name I believe is Melina Duterte or Duarte. I'm not entirely sure how her last name is pronounced. But um, what it is is sort of – it's a little over a half hour. It's a relatively short collection of um, – I guess you could call them fuzzy pop songs. It's um, almost like some R&B songs, but there's a lot of fuzz around the edges. I guess you could call it lo-fi. There's elements of shoegaze music, which is the genre that I think we're going to uh, explore on this show a few episodes from now. Um Yola Tango is a band that definitely comes to mind when thinking about her, but it's varied, it's catchy, and um, it works for my relatively short attention span, and I think she covers a lot of ground in a short amount of time, and I would recommend it highly. Fantastic. I got that on my list of uh, tunes to be listening to. I hope to, to get to that sometime tomorrow. It's on my ongoing 2017 new albums list. Uh, next, we just want to cite um, some more recent modern examples of songs that sort of encapsulate the feelings that we get from that chalk torture. Um, you know, feelings of ecstasy, feelings of driving rock and roll. Um, the first one I think Brian actually picked was um, one of the staple songs of a band called Broken Social Scene. It's uh, This was a band, they were... Uh, a collective of Canadian musicians that they first came on the scene, I want to say 1999 with an album called You Forgot It in People. And it, um, this is one of the late 90s examples of, I think, the website Pitchfork really breaking a band. And the second song on that record is called Casey Accidental. And it's, we'll play a clip of it for you. It's just driving ecstasy. It's, uh, it's upbeat, it's loud, it's melodic. And... We see no reason why you shouldn't enjoy it.
All right, and that was uh, Casey Accidental, the second track off of Broken Social Scene's um, second record. You got it in people. Uh, 2002, that record came out. I always think of my freshman year of college with that uh, that album. But yeah, that's that's the first record that they recorded as like a full 12 to 15 person band. Um, the, the the band that spurred the career of Feist. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Brendan Cannon and uh, Kevin Drew, the the two founders of the band, recorded a kind of bedroom ambient pop record in 2001 called Feel Good Lost. That, um, oh, really, that's right. Really nice, really lovely record. Nothing too amazing on it, nothing uh, as incredible as you get throughout Feel Good or uh, You Forgot It in People, but um, really, really wonderful little sounds there. Um, but that song, man, I that was the first record I purchased after reading a Pitchfork review. I was 18, 19, had just found out about Pitchfork, read this incredible review about an album that apparently was going to change all of indie rock and um, you know, sparing the hyperbole. I think it did affect a, a good deal of the, the genre in terms of oh. its uh, explosiveness and its popularity and its reach from oh. uh, previously unknown artists, but um, man, some lasting, lasting songs on there. Almost Crimes, um, Pacific Theme, uh, Cause Equals Time, um, to go along with Casey Accidental. Just a really, really memorable, complete album. One of my favorites of, of all time. Yeah, that was one of those records that um, when I saw on my then-girlfriend, now-wife's shelf back in 2004 when we first started dating, I said, oh, okay, I could have something here. <laughs> it's always a good sign. That's always a good yes. sign. Um, I actually saw them uh, when they were when they reunited back in 2010, and um, Kevin Drew, who has has a reputation for being something of a uh, uh, of an asshole, uh, if you will, in the music scene. Taskmaster. Um, yes, he uh, uh, spent the better part of the second half of the show in an argument with the sound guy who just looked like a, a helpless roadie that wasn't, I don't even think he was broken social scenes. I think he was hired on by pitchfork for, for the festival. Um, but, uh, that's, that's the biggest memory I have from the show, which might be telling you something. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on. So broken social scene, uh, really amazing, uh, early aughts group. Um, the next song that we have for you guys, uh, is from probably my favorite record of this decade. I don't know if anything has come close to it. I don't know if anything will top it, but uh, off of the War on Drugs uh, 2014, um, dare I say masterpiece? Uh, it's a masterpiece. You can definitely say masterpiece. I will I will, will back you up on that 100% on this record. I have to... I, I, almost wore it into the ground in 2014. I think I listened to it by the end of the year. I was listening to it at least three or four times a week. It just did not get old and always felt essential to listen to really fit where I was at in life at that point in time, coming off of two years of traveling around the world and trying to settle into some sort of domesticity. Um, but now I kind of have to give myself uh, a couple weeks break between listening to it to really feel it as much as I did. Um, but we've picked the song Burning, um, which for me, you, know, you talk about like the reverse of the drunk sunset. Um, I remember being up in northern Wisconsin with my brother and my dad. 
listening to this record right in peak fall, uh, right on the on, on a dock overlooking a just no-name lake uh, up there in way northern Wisconsin, watching the moon rise up and getting drunk and talking about life. And this song came on, and it just felt like a moment to just cry out to the heavens, uh, <laughs> which which for me is just what the the Camden Chalk Dust is. Um, yeah, we're on drugs. What's his name? I'm drawing a blank here. What's his name? I know it's basically it's one guy in his band. Yeah, Adam Grantshill. Adam uh, Grantshill. Right. I believe he was he, um, 38 or 39 when this record came out, which is really, really amazing. Well, I mean, I'm 37, so I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel that old. But no, certainly in rock and roll years, to pull out your masterpiece at 38 years of age, that's uh, it's not something you hear every day. Um, yeah, that's what no, I that, think. Him and his band, they specialize in driving road trip heartland 80s imbued rock and roll. And I say 80s because the production on that record, it sounds like the album I keep coming back to to compare that is like Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Yeah. Um, Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. Like it's got like that shiny, boomy 80s sound, sort of not a corny drum sound, but it... Um, Goodness, even something like John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band from Eddie and the Cruisers. I'm kind of dating myself with that reference. But um, that whole album, especially that song, just it's a road trip record. It sounds fantastic on vinyl. And I definitely played it into the ground very happily. And also the live show slays. They uh, they played Radio City Music Hall, I think, about a year and a half ago. And I was... um, I was two feet off the ground at that show in Silver. I've seen him three or four times. I was I was really lucky to get a um, uh, pass to see them at a at a guitar shop in in Chicago with about three hundred other people. Um, watched them play about a forty minute set. I was about ten feet away from the band and um, unbelievable. Um, I saw them there. I've seen them about three or four times since in larger venues and. Um, right there with you, two or three feet off the ground. Um, they just, they know how to wield a set list that doesn't feature a ton of different songs, um, but they know how to pull out a few of their older songs while also kind of mixing things up with um, their last two records, both Slam Ambient and um, Lost in the Dream, which they feature most prominently throughout their, their live shows. But they're really, really, really transfer uh, their songs really well live. Right. I'm led to believe there's a new record coming out this summer, which is probably my most anticipated album of the year at this point. It's for me, it's 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 that or the national. Um, And this Mm. is uh, I don't know the last record I've been this nervous about. It's it's um, arrival. I just, Ah. (laughs) you know, I, I it's and I was talking to my dad about it. This was this was the record that I helped convince my dad that music beyond 1975 was really, really worth listening to. Uh, <laughs> and we've seen them together and uh, and both share a, a great affection for the band. Um, but he and I were talking about it. And we were saying, you know, you're either going to get the best record you've ever heard because it's somehow better than Lost in the Dream or it's just a reassurance that Lost in the Dream was as good as it was. Ah, that's wise. That's well put. All right. So let's listen to a little bit of Burning.
so um, we just had uh, Casey accidental and burning, uh, broken social scene and the war on drugs. Um, we wanted to focus right now on uh, one more particular section of the Camden Chalked Us, um, and that's the closing, uh, like, two minutes where Mike really takes over, and it almost sounds as though Fish is playing um, through a... It almost sounds as though they're, they're DJing upstage, on stage, and they're not actually playing instruments. It's pretty incredible how electronic the last minute or so sounds. What do you think? No, I agree that uh, the last minute, two minutes of that jam gets very, very laptop electronica in the sense, very beat heavy, very locked in, very mechanical. It isn't uh, the soaring melodic groove that we had previously heard, but it's very technical, almost like the gears of a machine kind of clicking together. And it's extremely impressive. It's really interesting because it's... um it's like a foreshadowing of where jam band music went five or six years after this. I, I feel like, you know, you had the disco biscuits that are around by this point, but you really had a, uh, a full awakening of electronic and dance music by like 2003, 2004. But it's really just another example for me of where fish was ahead of their peers in so many different ways. Are you talking with things like Soundtrap Sector 9 or... Yeah, just the whole... New Deal? Yeah, the Jamtronica scene, if you will. Right. Um, and I'm going to uh, uh, never forgive myself for saying that over a recording, but that, that term. <laughs> but <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, it's really... And, and so much of it came out of Trey uh, going and sitting in New York clubs throughout the spring of 1999 as he was forming Tab and... First tube and sand obviously came out of that, but it's it's just great for me to hear. It's really interesting for me to hear um, them really exploring with that type of terrain that early. So um, to kind of cap off this section, we um, wanted to play uh, a song off of a really unique and really uh, uh, lovely 2015 record by um, Colin Stetson and uh, Sarah Neufeld called 
never were the way she was. And um, Colin Stetson is a uh, baritone saxophonist. I believe I've got that right. Who yeah. um, plays some very avant-garde, very experimental music that always kind of toes the line between droning noise-based music and uh, really classical, uh, uh, beautiful underlining melodies. And the song in the Vespers in particular really features him using the saxophone in uh, almost a percussive way and and really has a similar vibe to what was going on towards the tail end of that Chakta. So what are your thoughts on all that? Um, No, I would concur entirely. I mean, I get a lot of, within that song, I mean, there's a lot of Philip Glass influence almost in terms of um, the ambient like repetition of the saxophone playing. I know it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, he does a lot of uh, like looping. Is that correct? Yeah, almost all of his songs are built out of a loop and um, he did a, uh, um, a, a trilogy uh, called History of Warfare over 2009, 2011, right. 2013, that um, most of the tracks on there would start from like a single uh, riff he was doing on his saxophone and then would build over time to just this really cacophonous, but just, you, you, it's kind of, it's the kind of music that if you're, if you listen to it with headphones on, if you listen to it over and over again, you almost get this melody throughout it that cuts through everything, cuts through all the noise and, um, I absolutely love it. It was huge for me when I was traveling, and this record was uh, just kind of a, a, a transition record for me as I was coming into a new phase of my own personal life, and um, this song just kind of straddles exactly what we're talking about here, and kind of exactly what was going on towards the end of that chalk dust right before it goes into Roger. Let's play it. Cool. Brian and myself wanted to give some uh, thanks to some individuals who gave us much encouragement to get this off the ground. I would uh, be RJB, who um, heads up the Helping Friendly Pod, which is fantastic. Uh, Tom Marshall with uh, the Under the Scales podcast. And also, more recently, Jonathan Hart, who has uh, the Broke Down Pod. Um, all those guys were really instrumental and getting us started and i highly recommend you listen to each of those podcasts for fish in the case of uh jonathan uh some grateful dead content because they're all uh very good guys with um some fascinating podcasts and um no also 
I guess in conclusion, I'd like to say that, uh, as we stated before, the reason that we decided on the Canon Chalk Dust, in addition to being very popular and notable jam, is that it really, to us, is the essence of fish in its uh, sheer melodicism and just the ecstasy of that uh, last five minutes to the more um, mechanical outro towards the end. It's just, uh, it's fantastic, would you say, Brian? Yeah, it is a pure example of why I said it earlier. Why I continue to listen to fish, um, while while continue to listen to fish no matter what. Um, really, really amazing jam. Um, I think it was a, a solid first choice for us. Um, just to kind of run through for you guys, uh, for anyone who wasn't taking notes throughout the episode, um, the songs that we featured throughout here and their corresponding albums. In case you want to seek them out from the samples that we played, so. Uh, the top there, we threw in uh, LCD Sound Systems, All I Want, which is off of uh, This Is Happening from 2010. Uh, following that was David Bowie, Heroes, off of the same uh, album title. Brian Eno's The Big Ship uh, concluded that first section off of Another Green World. And then in terms of uh, the more modern examples, we had Broken Social Scenes, Casey Accidental, the anthemic second song off of their album, You Forgot It and People, War on Drugs, Burning from the album Lost in the Dream, and then um, the last song we played there was Colin Stetson in the Vespers off of um, what album, Brian? Never Were the Way She Was, excuse me. Okay. And also, um, all goes according to plan, this podcast, which I believe is launching in the April. Uh, later on, that we'll be planning on having a, a blog and or Facebook page for both that's going to um, contain all these songs and uh, the albums that they correspond with, with the corresponding jams. It's not ready just yet, but I'd say bear with us. And as soon as that is up, we will absolutely let you know. Absolutely. And once again, you guys can find us uh, for the time being at underscore beyond the pond. Uh, we're really excited that you guys all joined us for our inaugural episode. Um, we're really stoked about this. We're hoping you guys come back next week. Um, we've got another great fish jam uh, up for, for you guys. And uh, please send us your feedback, your thoughts, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, listeners. And, Thank you, David. Um, all right. Until next time, let's go beyond the pond. <laughs> <laughs>